Please turn with me in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4. The words are behind me as well. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you are called in one hope of your calling, One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This passage has three things in it. It has a what, a how, and a why. The what is in verse 1. It's a command. And it's a very important command. It's a very important what. And we know it's very important for two reasons. The Apostle Paul starts by saying, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord. Why does he say that here? He says that to bring all of the weight of that on us. This is not a man who's writing from his yacht. He's not writing from his summer home. He's not writing from his limousine as he's on the way to visit the president or to be interviewed by CNN. He's a prisoner. And he says, this is incredibly important for you to hear. This is incredibly weighty for you to hear. You must hear this. I have paid the price for my commitment and my confession to Jesus Christ. I am a prisoner of the Lord. It's a heavy thing. And secondly, we know it's very important Because of the next thing he says, I implore you. I, as a prisoner of the Lord, implore you. Now, how many have used that word? How many of you have used that word this week? I implore you, pass the salt. It's not the kind of word we use very often, is it? Why? Because it's a serious word. It's a heavy word. It's a word that means... To come up next to somebody, up alongside somebody, and whisper to them? No. It means to come up next to somebody and yell at them. That's what the word means. To come up alongside and to call out to them. To plead with them, to urge them. This is nothing light. This is nothing easy. This is nothing trivial that you can just... Flip aside. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you. Now, what does he implore us to do? I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And I want us to slow down at that verse, sit down, and and really chew on it. Okay, so we're going to look at the words in that verse closely. I want to start at the end. 
He says, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. What is your calling? The way we usually use that word today or the way we think about it as calling, we think of vocation, we think of work, we think of job, career, what's your calling? And that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about something much bigger than that, much more important than that. It's a word that the Holy Spirit uses all the time throughout the New Testament. Paul uses it all the time in 1 Corinthians 1. As we've been studying through 1 Corinthians, we've been in chapter 1, we've, we've seen this word over and over again. For example, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2, where Paul says, To the church of God which is in Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. Called to be saints, holy ones. He uses it again in chapter 1, verses 23 and 24. This is 1 Corinthians 1. He says, But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block, to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 27. He says, For consider your calling, brethren, That there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. The men who come on Saturday mornings to David's Mighty Men, our men's group that meets on Saturday mornings, many of us have been memorizing Jude, the book of Jude. Almost done. And the very first thing that Jude says, <laughs> who, can I call on somebody? Jude, an apostle of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are, what? The called. Beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Uh, the first verse is easy. I got that one. What does it mean to be the called? There's... This is how the Bible describes Christians over and over and over again. It's those who have heard the voice of God. It's not just those who have heard my voice. So I'm calling out to you, and you hear my voice, and my vocal cords are vibrating the air, and it's hitting your eardrums and making your brain hear things. But that's not what he's talking about. To be... The called, to be called, to have this calling that he's talking about in Ephesians 4.1 is to be a Christian. It's to be a holy one, a saint, someone who has known the grace of God in power. He says in 1 Corinthians 1.23 and 24 that when the Jews hear, generally, when the Jews hear the, this word, this call that goes out to everybody, this call of the gospel, they stumble over it. It's a stumbling block to them. They think that's crazy. How can this possibly be? Jews gent or Gentiles, when they hear it, they say, that's foolishness. What do you mean? A, a man who's actually God, who dies for the sins of his people and is raised from the dead. That's just crazy. And some of you, that's where you are, even right now. You're here under the sound of my voice, and you hear that message, and you think, that's crazy. How can that be? And the interesting thing is, 
that Scripture says that's exactly what you'd say. So if you're here saying, I refute the doctrine of the cross because it's foolishness, actually, you're verifying the doctrine of the cross because God said you'd say that. You'd say it was foolishness. Of course it's foolishness to you. Are you called? This calling with which you have been called, what is he talking about? In the context of Ephesians, it's everything he's said so far. That's why he says, therefore, at the beginning of this verse, therefore, based on everything I've said to you, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. So what has he said so far? Well, he's talked about election. He said that if you're a Christian, you're a Christian because God has chosen you from before the foundation of the world. He set his love on you from before the foundation of the world, even though you were dead in transgressions and sins. He set his love on you. You hated him. You were an enemy, a child of wrath. He set his love on you and caused you to be, he caused his son, Jesus Christ, to come and to die for you. Redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He's caused his Holy Spirit to be given to you, to make you alive in him. To give you new birth, to make you alive from the dead. He has caused you to be an, adopt, an adopted son, a son of God by adoption. He has put you into the family of God, the household of God, the temple of God, the church of God. He's knit you together with other believers all through time and made you one of his people. He has filled you. He says in chapter 3, he has filled you with the knowledge of the love of God that passes understanding. Filled you with all the fullness of God. He has put you on display for angels to look at and marvel at and glorify God for. That's your calling. Think of how big it is. Think of how weighty it is. Think of how magnificent it is. He says, at, right at the end of chapter 3, <clears throat> right before he says, therefore, in, in our verse, right at the end of chapter 3, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is about eternity. Do you know, think of what, think of just your own life and think of what the angels must have said when you became a Christian. Really? Are you sure? Him? That's amazing. Her? Do you feel the weight of that? Or do you just think, oh yeah, the angels would have thought, well, surely him, because I mean, of course I'm, you know. No. If, if that's what you think, you have no, you don't even begin to understand the gospel. He has saved you so that you would be a wonder before men and angels Forever. 
of the glory and the mercy and the grace of God. Do you feel that? Do you have any taste of that? Do you have any sense of that at all? The whole point of this passage hinges on how how heavy you feel that weight to be, the weight of your calling. And so if you think of your calling, as, if you think of everything that God has done to make you where you are right now, if you're a Christian, a child of God, if you think of all of that stuff as light and easy and superficial and, well, just of course, then this passage will make no sense to you and you will not be able to obey the commands in it. Meditate on, chew on, think about, ponder what it means for you to be called. The weight of the calling with which you have been called. Are you called? Are you the called? I mentioned a second ago this passage in 1 Corinthians where it says Jews think that it's stumbling block. Gentiles think it's foolishness. There's some of you, surely, who think exactly that in this room. Some of you, though, may, um, you know, you don't think the cross is a scandal. You don't think it's crazy, but you have an intellectual grasp of it, and you understand it, and you could recite it, and you could talk about it. But how are the called really described? He says, in that passage in 1 Corinthians, the Jews a stumbling block, Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the what? The power of God and the wisdom of God. Have you known Christ to be the power of God for you? The power of God, the wisdom of God. Not an interesting intellectual artifact, not a puzzle, not a riddle, not a tradition. Not a heritage. Because you've been raised in a Christian home. But the power of God. Some of you, well, who knows? Some of you have heard sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon. And that's still where you are. The cross, no power, simply interesting thought. How do you know this isn't the last sermon you'll ever hear? Can anyone guarantee to me that this that you'll hear another sermon besides this one? Life is short. And I implore you, to use Paul's word, I implore you, come to Jesus Christ, cast all of your hope on him, forget about everything else that you're trusting in, and know him to be the power of God for you. So that's calling. What does it mean to walk? He uses this word walk. I implore you to walk. What does he mean by walk? This is another word that 
Scripture uses over and over again. Paul uses this word over and over again, even just in the book of Ephesians. He uses it over and over again. He says in Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Later on in chapter 4, verses, or verse 17, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk, no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. In chapter 5, verse 2, he says, Walk in love just as Christ also loved you. 5, 8, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. 5, 15, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. What is he talking about? Walk. Obviously he's not talking about, you know, your posture and how you put one foot in front of the other. What's he talking about? This is a word that is is a real graphic word because it is the word for walk. But what it means is going through the details, the mundane details of your life. That's what it means, the daily grind, going through the path of your life from one day Day in, day out. Day in, day out. As you get up and do your stuff and go to bed, and then you get up and do your stuff and go to bed, and you do this over and over again, that's what the word walk means. So it's about details. You know the saying, the devil is in the details. I don't know what that means. Anyone know what that means? What does that mean? Sounds like something Archie would say. (laughs) In reality, God is in the details. So what's he saying? I implore you to live out the details of your life. We tend to think of of our Christian lives in these kind of big, general, broad terms. Yeah, you know, I'm a Christian. And generally speaking, you could look at my life, and generally speaking, you could see the general trend of my life, generally speaking. Right? Broadly speaking. I mean, I'm not, you know... Don't get too close, but if you look at me from a distance, you can generally see that I must be a Christian. And Scripture doesn't allow us to do that, because this word is about details. What I've always said to my sons as they've grown up in my home is this. I have sons who make profession of faith and have from a fairly young age, and I've said to them, and as they've gone off to school, they're committed to Christ, they speak for him, they come to church, They're, they appear to be godly young men. But what do I say to them all the time? I say, boys, you know, that's great, but I don't care about that. Because what really matters? What really matters is what they do at home, Right? What really matters, this is what I always say to them, what really matters is how do you treat your brothers? How do you respond to the authority of your mom and dad? It's the little details. It's when you get up close. That's that's the extent to which you are walking. Now, What does he say next? Walk. I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. What does it mean to walk worthy? 
Whenever you see that word worthy, and you'll see it a lot if you have your eyes open for it in the New Testament, you should always think of this. You should think of that picture. It's a statue or something somewhere that we all can think of is uh, Lady Justice. You know the statue, Lady Justice? Is this woman standing there? Is it on the Supreme Court or something? I don't know. Dad, you know? My dad's a lawyer, so he should know. Uh, Brian? I don't know where you are. Anyway, it's a statue of a woman with a blindfold on, right? And she's holding a scale. You know the kind of scale she's holding? With the bar and two little pans of weight on each side? That kind of scale. All right, that word... That scale is this word worthy. So, you know, in the old days, when we didn't have digital scales, you guys will remember this. <laughs> right? You go and you say, I want a pound of meat. And so they got the pound weight, the weight that weighs a pound, stick it on one side, chunk, and they keep putting meat on until chunk, they what? They equal one another? The one side is worthy of the other. That's the word. Okay, now think of what he means by that. Well, actually, yeah, think of what he means by that. Walk. On one side you have the calling with which you've been called, all the weight, all the glory, all the heaviness of that. Right? And he says, make the details of your life such that it goes like this. It equals. It makes sense. It measures up to. It corresponds to. It's worthy of the calling with which you've been called. And he uses this word worthy in many places. Philippians 1.27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Same idea. Conduct yourselves. Live out the, de the details of your life in a way that measures up to the gospel. Galatians 1.10, Paul prays that we would walk, there's that word walk again, in a manner worthy of the Lord. The Lord is on one side of the scale, and we are to live in such a way that measures up to Him. 1 Thessalonians 2.10-12, Paul uses all three of these ideas, calling, walking, worthy, all in one place again, and he says, you are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers, just as you know, how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Being a Christian is not about just having the right ideas. It's about how you walk. And the more seriously you take your calling, the more weight you feel of your calling, the more heaviness you feel, the more glory you feel, the more appropriately you'll walk. Here's the bottom line. You have a calling... Grace, glory, gospel, the Lord, forgiveness, all of that weight. You have a calling. That calling does not excuse you from practical holiness. 
the grace of God, your calling, empowers you for practical, practical holiness, and it calls you to it. It demands it. We're so quick to say, yeah, the grace of God, the grace of God, the grace of God. And then live like this. In the name of the grace of God, in a way that's completely unworthy of the calling of the grace of God. This is a command. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Now, how? That's the what. What's the how? When you think of this kind of language, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, you expect him to say next, you know, yeah, have some magnificent, glorious, self-sacrificing act of valor, the calling with which you've been called. I will boldly confess my faith before the whole world and I will go out in a blaze of glory. I kind of wish it did say that because in a sense that would be easy. That's not what he says. What he says is simple, mundane, difficult. Verse 2, with all humility... And gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now look at each one of these things. Humility. Humility is at the top of the list because humility is the root of everything else. Humility is the root of being able to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. God places huge weight on humility. All through Scripture. James 4 6, a line that is repeated over and over throughout the Bible, God opposes the proud but gives, what? Grace to the humble. The grace of God connected with humility. Proverbs 3.34, toward the scorners he is scornful. Can you imagine having God scorn you in your pride? To the scorners he is scornful, but... To the humble, he gives favor. Psalm 149.4 For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Psalm 147.6 The Lord lifts up the humble. He calls, he casts the wicked to the ground. Grace, favor, lifting up, salvation. Humility is at the heart of what God does in you when he makes you a Christian. And if you're not if you have no inkling of humility in you, how can you possibly be a Christian? It's a sign of the work of God's Spirit in you. What does humility lead to? He says, with all humility and gentleness, being not easily offended. Patience. You know what it means, you know, when we say uh, someone has a short temper or someone has lost their temper? Right? We all use that term, right? What does that mean? You ever thought about what that actually means? What gets tempered? What gets tempered? Metal, right? Right? It does, honest. <laughs> and metal 
when you temper it through a process that I don't understand, but they temper it so that it's hard, so that it won't break. And so when metal loses its temper, what does it do? It snaps. Think of that. How quickly are you brittle? Do you snap? Or are you patient? It's patience. Humility, patience, gentleness, patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, putting up with one another, bearing with one another. Verse 3, being diligent to preserve, to protect, to guard the unity of the Spirit, the unity produced by the Spirit in the bond of peace. Pride destroys all of that. You cannot have any of that and have pride. That's why James says, in James chapter 3, when he's talking about wisdom, and he says, oh yeah, you call yourself wise? You call yourself wise? You talk about your wisdom? Show it to me. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds, and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. For some of us, this is the perfect description of our homes. Disorder and every evil thing. It comes from jealousy and selfish ambition. It comes from pride. A wisdom that he calls demonic. Something else about the how. What are the assumptions behind these commands here? To walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. What are the assumptions behind all of those things? Can you do any of those things alone? No. No. You can't do any of them alone. You can't do any of them isolated from other people, from other Christians. You cannot do them apart from the context of the local church. All of these commands are corporate. They require you to be in relationship. You understand? They require you to be in relationship. And not just cold, distant kind of aloof relationship, Because you're able to put on a good face then. Intimate, warm, real relationship. The kind of relationship that makes you feel free to yell at your kids. You understand? We only do that with the people we're closest to. We only lose our patience with people we're close to. And so this passage assumes that we will be close to one another because... Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. You cannot walk in a manner worthy of your calling apart from the intimate relationships that come from the community, the family of the local church. Second assumption. All of these assume what? Sin. 
Why do I need to be gentle with you? Why do I need to be patient? Why do you need to be patient with me? Why do you need to put up with me if I'm not sinning against you? The church, all these commands assume the church and they assume that the church will be a place where people sin against each other all the time. Otherwise, why would I have to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? Why would I have to break a sweat doing that if it was easy? It's not easy. It's hard. So if you assume that being in a church will mean easy, you know, no intimacy, no relationship, and if you run, if you lose your temper, if you snap the first time someone steps all over your toes in the, in the church, and you're out of here, then you've just put your place, you just put yourself in the place where it's utterly impossible for you to obey these commands. Now, look at the next thing, the why. Why be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? Verse 4. There is one body, the church, knit together, members of one another. There is one Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who fills us, makes us alive, gives us strength and power. Just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, And that hope is what lets you hear these commands and embrace them, by the way. Hope of your calling. One Lord, one King, one Master, one Lord under whose authority all of us stand. One faith that we all embrace. One baptism that we all profess our faith with. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all, why is he saying these things? These are huge realities that have a direct bearing on the mundane details of how you live your life. He is calling your attention away from you. Whenever you get freaked out because someone has stomped all over your toes and offended you, and you're going to bear a grudge and keep bearing a grudge, against them, and you're going to destroy the unity of the church, and you're going to fly off the handle at them. Tell me, do you have any of those things in your mind? One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, one hope. Where is the hope of your calling when you're flying off the handle at somebody for offending you? It's gone. It's nowhere to be found. These are the things we have to constantly keep in front of us. The world and our own flesh constantly drives them away. and makes it so we cannot obey these commands. Here's the bottom line. The real bottom line is that the grace of God empowers you for practical holiness. Your calling does not negate your call, your the necessity for you to obey, it establishes your ability to obey. The grace of God empowers you for practical holiness in the context of the church. So here's my exhortation to you. 
Give yourself to practical, mundane, messy holiness. I beg you, I implore you, just like Paul does, I urge you, give yourself to these things. Give yourself to the messy, practical, boring, mundane holiness of walking together in the context of this relationship that you can only have in the church. Do not keep yourself aloof from the church. Do not insulate yourself from the pain and the intimacy and the vulnerability of the church. This is your home. And of course you're going to be offended in your home. You don't leave your home for it. And if you think that you can even begin to take these commands, and there's many, many, many more exactly like them, if you, even, if you think you can begin to take these commands seriously and yet keep yourself aloof from the church, you have lost your mind. It is utterly nonsensical. It does not make sense. It's crazy. And yet that's where many of us are, isn't it? The church is your home. The church is your family. The church is where God is glorified before men and angels. The church is where... You can, the only place where you can, walk as a Christian. Live out the daily lives, the daily details of your life as a Christian. And so I implore you, walk in a manner worthy of this glorious calling. Let's pray.